Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Last fall, I wrote an opinion piece for Institutional Investor entitled, When Will Yale Buy Bitcoin?, that discussed the adoption of new asset classes in institutional portfolios. You can find it on the blog page of my website. At the time, I didn't understand enough about the crypto world to come up with a framework for how crypto might make its way into institutional portfolios. My guest on today's show is John Pfeffer, and he has done just that. John is an entrepreneur, investor, and author of An Institutional Investor's Take on Crypto Assets. He's currently a partner of his family office, Pfeffer Capital. In the 2000s, John was a member at private equity firm KKR, and in the 1990s, he was chairman of the executive board of leading French IT company Group Allium SA. Before that, he advised on turnarounds while with McKinsey in Europe and Latin America. Our conversation jumps into the thought process and structure behind John's family office portfolio that combines building new businesses alongside investments in public equity, private equity, and venture capital funds. We touch on common issues like active versus passive, access, and fees, but from a very different insider's perspective. We then turn to his work in the crypto world and discuss his framework for incorporating crypto investing in a portfolio, conducting research in the space, defining the proposition for store of value and utility protocols, and valuing tokens and coins. John was the first investor I've come across that has both done a deep dive into the crypto world and is neither all in nor all out. He connects markets and economics with a complex ecosystem just simply enough that a layman like me can follow along. Please enjoy my conversation with John Pfeffer. John, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. How do you think about managing your own capital? Our ideal model would be to try to build a sizable business every few years from scratch, but with a limited part of our capital. And the rest is just portfolio. And we invest in all kinds of things. So let's tackle both sides of that. What's the process to find that business in the first place? I approach it the following way. There are things that I'm interested in at any given point in time, themes. And I start to dig in and spend time, maybe spend a bit of money trying things out. And that can mean everything from just I'm spending time reading and meeting people, or maybe I'm going to conferences. Maybe I even something specific, I go after a potential like seed acquisition, or I hire a, a consultant to look at this, that this or that thing, it then becomes very much a matter of actually seeing what's working and quickly killing what isn't. At one point I was saying, well, you know, maybe I should be more focused on just pure tech investing. This was back in 11 and looked at different models for how you could somehow systematically be a better early stage tech investor because I think it's a very hard thing to do. So I was looking at different ways to go about that and ended up kind of concluding "Mm, it's hard and ended up passing. I thought there was an interesting idea in 
I mean, some people will laugh, but, you know, kind of like the Amman resort for, of retirement homes, sort of super more and more wealthy people getting older. You could create a kind of a new brand that would provide some of these facilities. And I, you know, spent a little time looking into it and then just concluded it was really capital intensive and not, you know, not that exciting. You know, kind of churn through ideas and you say, you know, they're thematic and then most of them don't pan out. And as long as you kill them quickly, that's fine. The advantage of starting things from scratch is you you get to stage your capital at risk. And if you're willing to kill stuff that isn't working quickly and you don't get sort of tied, you know, emotionally tied to it, you end up kind of only having a lot of capital committed to the things that end up working, sort of, you know, by definition. And then, you know, so the business that you end up building is the one that just survives, that keeps kind of performing, we keep incrementally investing in. And it, it works well. And, and, and the idea is, is that that hopefully every few years generates a, a step function, additional wealth. And then the portfolio, meanwhile, which is most of the assets, enable us to say, well, you know, worst case scenario, even if we were to get a fair amount of exposure to this venture and then it fails, you know, in a later stage, well, we've still got most of our assets and those hopefully are compounding at a decent rate so we can absorb that if that does happen. Yeah. So if you take it in a portfolio context, you mentioned that the thematic deals are small. Do you think of it as a percentage of assets? Notionally, the idea is, look, even at peak, you don't want more than, say, call it 15% of assets at cost exposed to the entrepreneurial venture of the moment. And that could be one. So if, it could be one. If you have multiple. Well, no, but I don't do more than, I typically do we do one at a time. Okay. I mean, you start with maybe you have several like little seeds, but by the time you're getting real capital committed, it's whittled to one. Okay. I focus my energy on that yep. as long as I need to. And then if we're still but we're at a stage where it doesn't require as much of my time, then maybe I can add a second, but it's not 10. Yeah. So let's talk about your new big project. There's this interesting retail model that has been very successful in the UK in particular. And there's one company in the US that's doing something similar, which is mainstream consumption. So a brand, fast moving consumer goods in food and drink, health, beauty, cleaning, that where you source opportunistically. So you're basically buying excess product. You can consistently offer great products in most categories if your purchasing organization is good enough and as a consequence deliver branded consumer goods at like a 30% discount to type of markets or whatever there are two big players in the UK that have built very large businesses on this model no one's doing it at scale in Europe and so the idea is to try to build that business and we started in Spain we're opening a store about every fortnight right now and it's touch wood going how big are the boxes 400 square meters so it's, now, Spain is a high street environment. 95% of Spaniards live in, a, in, a, in an apartment block. So it tends to be, you know, you proximity shopping, 500 meter radius around where you live. And so that, that drives the box size. And it's, it's a really cool concept that, again, there's just a lot of opportunity to develop in other markets. And we have the good fortune of having a fantastic management team that are doing a great job. And, you know, I think that could be a, a, a big business. So then how do you think about the other? Yeah, the 85. So I'm a perfect markets guy, at least in, to the extent that I think it's a useful heuristic, meaning I don't really engage in deep philosophical debates about whether what markets might not always be perfect. My view is, is that the cost of exploiting any imperfection probably equals or exceeds the value of going after that. 
so as a consequence, I don't believe sort of that I'm going to go and outperform by being the cleverest guy at picking stocks or, or even frankly picking individual passive private investments. I think if you're not in control and focused on it, just that act of picking, I'm not convinced, is enough. So I try to exploit what I think we can exploit. And we have the good fortune that our assets significantly exceed our, our needs. And that gives us an edge, or a couple of edges that I think are a priori exploitable, if you will. We effectively have an infinite investment horizon. And as a consequence, we can tolerate illiquidity across a you know, significant percentage of our portfolio. And we can tolerate quite a lot of volatility. So the way I think about it is you start from the perspective, hopefully, you know, you're investing in things that where at least the, over the long term, the coin is biased in your favor, maybe a little bit, but at least biased in your favor. And the key is just making sure you can keep flipping the coin. And so you can never hit zero, right? And that means no portfolio leverage, don't go short, the things that can get you to zero. And as long as you don't do that, if you have a long horizon and you're able to tolerate volatility, you should be able to get paid for, for that. And do you have biases of the various potential investment alternatives? Yeah, well, so the implication of what I just said is we tend to be kind of all risk assets all the time. Now, sometimes there's cash flow issues, meaning you've got commitments, and so sometimes you've got distributions, and so you end up with some cash, or maybe you you have a slight amount of sort of tactical leverage in the portfolio just because you're meeting commitments and not funding that by selling assets and stuff like that. We don't buy insurance we don't need, meaning we don't want to exchange our long-term average return for volatility suppression that we don't really need. And if we're sufficiently diversified and we have a long enough horizon, we shouldn't be exposed to that much risk. I mean, even if the markets come down in 2008, whatever, you know, markets come down 50%. Well, that's a bad trip, but you're not going to go bust. And as long as you just ride it out, you're going to be fine in the long run, provided you weren't levered. So we're all risk assets. And so that typically translates into uh, public equity, private equity, venture, and then our own venture, but, you know, venture being venture capital. And are you doing all that through funds? Well, so on public side, I'm an indexer. And that's typically almost like global market cap weighted. Maybe, we're, maybe we have a bit of emerging markets we don't, depending on whatever. But I don't try to over-engineer that. I try to save on, the, on sort of fees and tax on that front. Private equity, I'm a big fan of the asset class. I think that leverage buyouts in particular are just a, a great asset class. And you know, just the simple fact of at the beginning, you know, sort of at the basic idea of just buying cash flowing businesses with predictable cash flows, levering them up, getting a tax shield is just a very effective way to get a several hundred basis points of additional return. And because of my, my years at KKR, I have the good fortune of knowing a lot of the great GPs in the space and, and therefore the opportunity to invest in, in their funds. And I think that's just a great way to do it. And, and we have probably like a foundation level allocation of that kind of stuff relative to total assets because we don't need the liquidity. We think it gives us predictably higher returns in a meaningful way. And we think the odds of us, if we invest in a top GP, of, of there being capital impairment in a fund are just zero or you know very remote. And so anyway, yeah. that's the way we look at that. So let's, before we go into venture, let's, yeah. let's dive through that a little bit. Start with tax shield. What do you think the impact of the tax changes end up having on the businesses of private equity. Ownership. To be frank, we're not particularly U.S. biased to begin with, and so it's only part of what we do in private equity. And 
And within that, you know, I, I mean, I, I read some of the commentary and it sounded like it wasn't that big a deal and probably net-net, given the reduced corporate tax rate, a bit of a wash. It's fine. Not going to fundamentally change your asset yeah. allocations over this. So as an insider from the buyout industry, what do you think you know about other GPs that LPs might not? What can I say? I, I was in the sausage factory for a decade and, and I love sausage. Meaning I think it's a really good asset class and I like what it does for overall portfolio returns. The top GPs are very good at risk management and good at diversification. And and as a consequence, the chances of, again, investing in a fund and getting less than your money back are in practice quite low if to the point of any trivial. And then I figure I'm going to get LPs in a large buyout fund, you know, should probably expect low double digit net returns, but that's great because it's predictable over, you know, over time. I think it's important to diversify across vintages mostly. And clearly, it's fairly easy to see which firms have a long track record and, you know, a deep bench. And I think that's important. And there's a bit of a negative selection. So I don't feel the need to kind of go way off piste and try some new manager to try to eke out a couple hundred basis points of extra gross returns, maybe when I, but it's it's kind of the opposite. I don't want to I don't want to invest in a fund and then have impairment. And I know if I go with top managers like KKR, I won't, ha- I won't have that happen. But vintage risk is important to manage. So we try to have an allocation every year and say, okay, this is how much we want to commit every year and keep that more or less smooth, maybe smooth and rising because of compounding, such that we're not overly exposed to a, a vintage because you can't have a bad vintage. Beyond that, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually have respect for the industry. I was in it a long time, and, and you know, we're, we're significantly allocated to it. How many different organizations have you invested with? Well, in my specific case, somewhat driven by personal relationship. Five is the answer. I should say five main, and then there's one or two that are smaller, but people I knew who have spun off and all that. But let's call it five. And that was the main criteria is sort of you know the people, you know the work they do. Com- a combination of, I mean, given, I know the people, and, and these are top, you know, great, great GPs. KKRs and, and their ilk and who I have relation, you know, I'm friends with and I know and I respect. And yeah, how'd you tackle it in venture capital? Tough. So I figure that I think that probably the asset class is somewhere between, on average, money losing to simply underperforming relative to say buyouts or or whatever as an asset class. So more than even more than I think in buyouts, it's you know manager selection is super important fine. Next, but there's a problem with that, which is there are a handful of funds that are just stellar and they're small, relatively speaking, and you just can't get in. I mean, you know, you got to, it, it takes extraordinary circumstances to have access. And then you have to come up with some strategy. And I think it's important to invest in venture, frankly, hopefully to make money, you know, and sort of get a decent return for the risk you're taking, but somewhat as a hedge. I mean, there's a a good chance that the next, say, 20, 30 years are going to see a pace of technological change like nothing we've ever seen. And if you're only invested in sort of incumbent businesses and industries, that could really catch you out. So it's important, I think, to allocate as a, as a hedge to begin with. And then you want that hedge ideally to be profitable, not an insurance premium. So that's what you start with that premise and you say, how do I get there to, to being profitable? And I also think that in venture, there is a, it helps to be in Silicon Valley. And I'm, you know, we're based in London, not in, in Europe, not in Silicon Valley. And, and so that's an extra layer of complexity. So what we ended up doing was had, we had the good fortune to ha- have a, a fairly significant personal network in, in the Bay Area and being friends with a handful of 
really great early stage investors that we know very well personally. And these guys are doing this day and night. They're super, super skilled, different focuses, software or, you know, genetics and, and so forth, and just had the opportunity to invest alongside them. And we, we know them and trust them. And then a couple of them, one in particular has raised a fund that we first LPs into, you know, delighted to continue that and develop that relationship. And so the solution for us has been to basically have, we have the good fortune of having friends that we trust who are really good at this and who give us the opportunity to invest with them either side by side in individual deals or in their fund. And, and, and that's worked well for us. And we would look at other opportunities perhaps if we had them. But right now it's working well and I'm really happy with that. How do you think about the fees you pay the managers that you're giving money to? We pay de minimis fees in public markets because we're indexing. On the private equity side, Given my background, we can do some on a friends and family basis, but sometimes we're paying fees. I look at it this way. I think it's a great asset class. I like the product. Trying to do it yourself, so how are you going to get out of fees? Well, you got to do it yourself. It's hard because what you're going to end up happening is, is that you're either going to be less diversified or you're going to have lots of small checks and incur a lot of expense, due diligence and other expense relative to the check sizes. And I'm not sure in the end that you're net winning. I think that, you know, the opportunity to invest in a large fund that has scale, and yeah, you're paying fees, but probably you're paying less in the end than you would if you were trying to go out and create it yourself. And then the alternative is not doing it at all, but I think that's dumb because I do expect that we're going to get a a low double-digit net, maybe mid-double-digit gross return out of these, and that's better than I expect out of the public market. So... You know, it's kind of, yeah, I'd rather pay less fees. And I think if you can, you should. But the alternative of doing it yourself, I don't think actually is cheaper in the end. So, John, when we originally got introduced, you had written, called a white paper, a memo uh, called An Institutional Investor's Guide to Crypto Assets that I read. And for someone who doesn't know a lot about the space, it just made a lot of sense to me. Like I could understand 85, 90% of it. It was sophisticated, but not too, not too tough. So how did you first get involved in looking at cryptocurrencies? So I had the good fortune of being a friend of Vincis Casares, who is known as Bitcoin Patient Zero. I think it was Reed Hoffman who gave him that name because he had infected Silicon Valley with Bitcoin back years ago. And we were in Chile. It's this great place. And we were chatting. And in 15 minutes, he explained Bitcoin to me. And, and, the, and the explanation was simple. It was, or at least, I'll, and I'll even simplify it further, is basically, look, money is, is our invention of a ledger to keep track of what we owe one another. It's a debt ledger, right? And Bitcoin is a better tech than we've ever had for that. It's probably going to fail because it's a new tech and new technology often does. It's venture. But if it succeeded, you can actually think about why it would be worth a lot more. And just a basic understanding of, hang on, this is an interesting new technology. I understand what its potential use case is, even if it's not that today yet. And the fact that it was quite obviously an asymmetric option. And I think in the portfolio, it's good to have some asymmetric options, some things which hopefully have a positive expected value. So it's not a lottery ticket that you know, you're expecting to lose money, but you're expecting hopefully to make money on, on average. But if it works, it could be a big payout. And if it doesn't work, well, you made a small bet anyway, so it's not the end of the world. And it just fit that bucket. Part of the, the, the point about we have an infinite investment horizon means you can afford and you should look, I think, to have 
some really, really asymmetric kind of options in the portfolio, enough that hopefully over time, there's an extra boost to returns. In the structure of your portfolio, where do you put those? Yeah, it kind of depends. It's just in between. Sometimes it can just be in the other section. In this case, I sort of notionally put it in the venture because it's tech. And I said, that's what this is. And literally walked out of the of the meeting, called the office and said, guys, I think we should allocate X percent of assets to Bitcoin. And what was X at the beginning? Low single digit percentage. Yeah. And we did it all at once. The rationale being, when you have something that is highly asymmetric, and in this case, liquid, you're either kind of going to lose your money or make a big multiple. I mean, I do think there's, whether you're buying Bitcoin at $700 or $7,000 or $17,000, is frankly less material because you're either going to lose all your money or make a big multiple. There's no way it's going to be worth, if whatever it is, $9,000 today, anywhere between 4,500 and 18,000, you know, so 50 and 100 percent. It's just not, because there's not kind of, it wouldn't make sense. Why would it still be around? And, And so I kind of think about it and say, you've got this steep, this steep slope in terms of the expected return over time. Every day, you are out of that investment, you're paying actually a fairly high opportunity cost, perhaps, in terms of delaying the entry, and just make your investment and focus your energy on position sizing rather than timing, meaning focus yourself on how much would I be willing to lose over, you know, sort of, boom, overnight on this. So that that brings it down. And then the other hand, I won't look back if it's successful and say, what a schmuck, I should have invested more. And you kind of wrestle with that yourself and you just do it. When the option effectively is liquid, how, do you revisit it or do you just say, hey, I'm putting this in a lockbox for 10 years, we'll see what happens? Yeah, great question. Well, one thing is to be intellectually revisiting it. The other thing is to actually be doing something about that. I'm not certain about anything in life. So I'm constantly reassessing and reevaluating and adjusting. and But... I still view this as a long-term VC investment. And it's almost to me like it's an anomaly that it's liquid. And I try to ignore that, except for rare moments. It really has to do with like major shifts in views as opposed to, oh, it's $20,000 at Christmas and now it's you know $6,000. we are going to try to trade that range. I admire people who can do that. I don't think that's a skill of mine, so I don't try to. So you start with a 15-minute conversation that leads to small, modest investment in Bitcoin. That's quite a bit different from where you ended up Yeah. in terms of the knowledge that you now possess about this. So what did you do from there forward? So when I first did it, I said, guys, and I remember calling the office and they're like, oh, okay. And I said, yeah, this is a ready, fire, aim investment because... You know, it's got these asymmetric characteristics. We're going to bet a small amount. If we lose it, we lose it. Realistically, we're probably even then not going to lose it all. We'll probably lose, you know, it goes down 50%, we'll lose half. So therefore, it's okay for us to invest and then figure it out later. So I, we did it. And then it started going up. So that was a motivation to, to learn. And I kind of went from not knowing more than 15 minutes with Vince's, which is frankly a, already a privilege, to knowing some I said, well, wait a minute, you know, there's this other stuff. And this, we ended up adding, this is early, this early 17, some Ethereum and Zcash and, and other things. And that was sort of where we went from a sillyly small amount of knowledge to superficial knowledge. And then they all kept going up a lot more. And as the uh, summer rolled about of last year, it got to the point where I said, well, this is now in a mark-to-market meaningful enough that, you know, and just kept digging, kept digging and reading and reading, talking to people. But frankly, 
reading even more than talking to people. One of the challenges, I think, in the crypto space is pretty much everybody who really understands it has something to sell and are unable commercially to have the distance to say, well, maybe none of this makes sense or maybe very little of it makes sense. You know, they just, they just can't. And so you got to just read or be very selective and think about what, what that person's interest might be and, and, and sort of parse out what you can from the conversations. So I, I just read a lot. You know, I mean, I actually sat down and, you know, I've been reading the white paper, the Ethereum homestead documentation. I was trying to understand how this all worked. And came to the view that I said, you know what, actually, look, at the time it was, I just don't see how the current values of anything but Bitcoin can be justified. And we got out of everything but Bitcoin. And and that enabled us to take our basis plus a return out. And I wrote sort of an in, like a memo to self as to that was sort of the process of learning. And that was the memo. And I ended up, because I have a lot of friends in family offices and hedge funds and so forth who would ask me and I would answer their emails. And I said, well, guys, just read this. And then it got passed around. And I finally ended up after a while, because it's, you know, it, I kept getting inbounds, people had seen it. And what, I just said, fine, we'll publish it. We'll, we'll stick it on, on Medium. And it became very widely read, but it was basically a slightly modified memo to self. And the framework you used was really breaking down this ecosystem into store of value and utilities. And why don't you talk through what you learned about each of those? Kind of the current universe of investable opportunities, which are protocols trying to either be money or utility. And utility, I'll break into smart contract platforms or decentralized applications. It's simplifying. There might be exceptions, but I'm trying to capture and simplify as much as I can because there's so many things. In the future, there'll be tokenized claims on cash flows, and non-fungible tokens and collectibles. I think those could be interesting opportunities, but I'm not talking about that today and also in my paper because it's coming. And I don't want to imply that none of that's interesting because it's a different animal. So first of all, these things aren't cash flows. They might be securities according to the SEC, at least everything but Bitcoin, but they're not cash flow claims, right? So you can't value them by discounting expected cash flows. They're currencies. I mean, either actually trying to be some form of money, or there are currencies in an inside of a protocol's little closed economy. So if you want to do something on the protocol, you've got to do it via this internal currency. So, well, you can't discount cash flows. You can look at the equation of exchange identity. And that, remember, is M money supply times velocity is equal to GDP or, you know, quantity of transactions times the average price of transactions QP. MV equals PQ. It has to hold true. I mean, you can't have the money supply not equal the economic activity denominated in the currency divided by the frequency with which that currency changes hands because it just physically can't happen. You could have, you know, increasing velocity also drive up economic activity because there's reflexivity, but they still have to equate at some level. So let's apply that. And it's interesting that what that tells us about how to value these networks. The more economic activity that is denominated in the currency, the higher the network value, and by extension, the higher the value of the token of the currency unit. And secondly, the higher the velocity, the lower the value. All those kitteris paribus, right? So, and then the next question is, well, how are people really going to interact with these protocols when the speculative dust settles? So I think I'm incapable of predicting short-term price movements in just about anything, especially in crypto assets. And I don't try to. It's easier to think about, to imagine what it's like if all of this is successful technologically, you know, broadly. But what 
how are we going to interact with them? What is the world going to look like at some point in the future when we're no longer speculating on these things? We're actually using them for real stuff. And it seems to me that in protocol land, remember, these are all open source software projects. Every line of code can be copied freely or pretty much every line of code. Protocols can be forked, creating competing versions of the same software. The cost of moving from the crypto asset of one protocol to another one is pretty low. And there could be a high level of interoperability. Some combination of these things imply that competitive moats in protocol land are lower than they are in our world today. So that likely means that we're going to have hyper-specialized multiple protocols. So they're going to fragment the markets. And in that environment, number one, it's not likely that we're all going to be sitting on big inventories of dozens of protocol crypto assets trying to go about our daily lives or companies going about their daily business, right? Just, that, seems like a, that seems like that would be a weird world where we're all tying up lots of capital in native crypto asset currencies so that we can store our files or use Facebook or whatever it is that we're trying to do in some future or companies doing whatever trade they're trying to do. Instead, we're going to treat most of these things as working capital. And to make it intuitive, we know that companies, for example, I mean, there's, you know, there's entire departments focused on working capital reduction. That's like, you know, that's like a metric that you manage towards. Individuals do it intuitively. You know, think about how much electricity you store in your household versus how much food you store in your refrigerator and cash you keep in your pocket. Well, the answer is none, half a fridge and, you know, 60 quid or whatever. Well, right, that's because it's basically you're doing the operations management equation in your head of saying, what's the latency of replenishment, the optimal order size and the standard deviation of delivery uncertainty and arriving at the conclusion, I don't need to store any electricity, but I should have 60 bucks in my pocket. Let me use an analogy. You know, Walmart doesn't store their profits in, in warehouses of goods, right? They, if they could, they would have no inventories, right? But they, you know, they have to have some. They store their wealth, you know, they retain their earnings in other forms. Wealth storage things also tends to be very concentrated. There tends to be a, a dominant winner. If the needs of working capital through the blockchain technology or the cryptocurrencies are modest, why does that accrue then to value of Bitcoin? So my point being, I think there's two different things. So let's remember where this all started. This all started when someone calling themselves Satoshi Nakamoto built on prior innovations in cryptography, data structures, digital money, and solved a hitherto unsolved problem with digital money, which was how to prevent it from being spent twice without relying on a central authority. And that is actually a big deal. That's a big breakthrough. And the concept was, great, so now we have a non-sovereign, decentralized, peer-to-peer, secure form of money. And then people said, oh, wait a minute, now we can kind of vary this invention to create all these utilities, smart contract platforms, and so forth. Then they said, well, we saw how much Bitcoin became worth. It would be quite cool if we could do this with our own native currency because well, it's self-interested, right? You know, it's a way to make a lot of money. As opposed to, for example, saying we're going to build a protocol, which they could have done, that is just doing whatever I'm trying to do, but where the blockchain is secured by fees paid in a non-native currency. They could have, but they didn't. They created these native currencies. I think that's kind of a a little bit of a conceit. You know, they they did it because it was self-interested to do it. But there they are. There are these things. Now, 
when you move off of that kind of original, we're trying to have a censorship-resistant, non-sovereign kind of money, and you start doing these other things, these things may be useful, but again, they're probably going to be working capital to people, at which point if people are being forced to buy this crypto asset in order to use the protocol, they're going to try to minimize their inventories of these things. So is that to say, so just as, a, as an example for a layman like yeah. me, yeah. Filecoin, yeah. which is used for file storage, right. you'll just use it when you're buying file storage. You're not going to keep your money in Filecoin. Correct. So you use it, you convert, are you then, in the future, are you then converting your Bitcoin into Filecoin, you're doing a yeah. transaction, and well, you convert it back? So, okay, I can imagine a world. Also, remember, it would make sense, let's put it this way, for us to have, like, intelligent software agents managing all this for us. So I just don't see you and I or anyone else in 10 years dealing with inventories of dozens of protocol crypto assets on our own to do whatever we want to do in our daily lives. We're just not. We're going to, you know, there's going to be some software layer that's going to say, right, what do you want to do? Store files. Okay, well, we're going to go out and look at the different file storage protocols, figure out which is the best deal right now. You're not even going to see it happen. It's going to immediately buy, perhaps with Bitcoin, perhaps with digital fiat, what you need, store your files for you, and then dynamically see, well, now it's cheaper to store it in this other protocol. It'll just move it over for you. And all of that's going to probably happen in the background because how could it not? I mean, we're not going to be doing this ourselves. That would be a nightmare. Somebody will create that software layer to manage that and optimize that. And that algorithm will optimize on minimizing working capital, right. is my view, right? So, and the same would be true for smart contract platforms. Let me talk about smart contract platforms. I think it seems intuitive to me that it's very unlikely that we're going to be using the same protocol for settling multi-billion euro financial transactions and for Internet of Thing micropayments, right? You know, between our fridge and, and whatever, right? Because what you're trying to optimize for in each of those cases is different. In the, former, in the first case, you need maybe censorship resistance, but certainly security. You might be able to pay more. Speed is less important, but security is very important. You know, Internet of Things, microtransactions, well, frankly, who needs to, you, know, you don't need to worry about censorship resistance because it's just too trivial. It's speed and cost. And the protocols are going to be, you know, that would be best for those two things are probably not going to be the same protocols. And we're going to have several, and they're going to compete in different ways with one another. Again, what are we going to end up with? And we're all going to be sitting on stocks of the underlying crypto asset of multiple smart contract platforms, because maybe our fridge is going to communicate with the electric company or the, or the grocery store or, or Amazon or whatever. No, you know, we're just not. There's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be optimized. So those things to me, where I think they end up in the long term. The implication of that is that if we're approaching these things as working capital, that velocity will be very high. And if velocity is, is high, well, you either need an enormous PQ, you know, an enormous amount of economic activity, or your network value is going to be low. And you can relate that potential economic activity back to like real world constraints. We, only, we know the global economy is only $80 trillion. I mean, you can start reasoning from a top down, well, hang on, is there any way I can believe we get to that big a PQ if velocity is above a certain level? So that insight led me to say, well, actually, I think it's very hard to justify the values at the time. Now, let me pause and come back to that. And I'll come to the, the store of value case. I think it's a separate line of reasoning. So let me illustrate with a, a numerical example. So let's say today 
let's take Ethereum because it's big, not because I'm negative on Ethereum. I think Ethereum, by the way, is a fantastic project with great people. Just because it's successful, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that its crypto asset should be valuable. And I hope saying that that crypto asset may not be valuable or any of these isn't meant as hostile towards the project. I think that, in fact, it's a little odd to think. It's like, it's not obvious to me why that should be a metric of success in in an open source decentralized protocol environment. What you're trying to do is create these great protocols that people use and benefit from. Why that should necessarily translate into a speculative value in a crypto asset is not obvious to me. So no hostility, but let's take Ethereum. Current market cap, I don't know. Let's just assume it's $50 billion of network value today, depending on the, on the price at the moment. And let's just say that for some reason, people have 3.65 days of inventory, which is not clear why they would. I mean, they, Velocity could probably, could probably, in theory, go as low as one divided by block time, which means it could be a couple hundred thousand. So 100 is, in fact, not at all a pessimistic assumption. It's actually pretty optimistic. You know, you could easily add a zero or a few zeros to that number. Let's say it's 100. So you take 50 billion, you multiply by 100, and you've got 5 trillion. You would need today's PQ or economic activity to be 5 trillion. Now, of course, we know it's not. We're assessing what it might be in the future. But let's say you needed to have, you had a 50% IRR venture capital type return expectation, and it's going to take 10 years before really this you know, Ethereum is, is sort of embedded in the economy, and that's the return you want to earn over 10 years. Well, that requires a 57 multiple. So your 5 trillion times 57 means that $285 trillion of PQ is where you have to believe you're going to be in 10 years to justify the current network value. Well, great, except that the global economy is only $80 trillion. So you got to believe you're going to get to 3.5x the global economy in 10 years denominated in Ethereum. That just doesn't seem like a good bet to me. You know, so I look at it that way. And we can go down the list of, of, of other currencies. And again, this is nothing, nothing against Ethereum. I think it's going to be very successful. I'm just not sure I would buy ETH at the current value because of that math. Amazon in 2000. For example, except the fact that you know, ultimately that worked out. Here, I think it's actually kind of hard to reconstruct an adequate return. Or, you know, I, th- I, just, I just kind of don't see how to get there. So, I mean, could I see, by the way, in parentheses, I mean, I think already getting to $5 trillion of economic activity denominated in ETH would be an enormous success. But that's what you have to be at today. So you're getting no return on the investment. Why would you do that, given the, given the risks? Now, so the consequence of that is, is that I'm not sure these utility protocols at today's values make a lot of sense. The interesting thing is, going back to Satoshi's original idea of digital decentralized peer-to-peer money, and if, and in particular, if people were willing to store their wealth in a crypto asset, then velocity could be low and the value could be high. Now, to me, that's actually somewhat intuitive that they might. And again, might is the key word. I'm not telling anybody that I'm certain this is going to happen. But to me, it's pretty incredible that we're a spacefaring digital civilization. And the best technology we've come up with so far for a non-sovereign store, monetary store of wealth is a yellow metal we dig out of the ground at great human and environmental expense, melt into blocks and put back underground. That's kind of nuts. We're not going to be doing that in when we're flying around in space. We're not going to be carrying gold bars. We're going to have some other tech. Well, Bitcoin's the first candidate to do that, first, you know, really like viable candidate to do that. Maybe it succeeds. So that's the venture capital bet you might make. And if you did, velocity would be low by definition, sort of by construction. If it's a store of value, people aren't 
changing hands, you know, it's not changing hands very much, so it's got a low velocity. So you can get to a higher value. That, to me, continues to make sense. And, you know, if just for a low bar, Bitcoin is easier to store and transact with than gold. So it's easy to see that it could have owned more than gold, right? But currently today, private sector owns about $1.6 trillion worth of gold bullion, like investment gold. So let's just assume that it got to 1x that. That would be $1.6 trillion of network value compared to $150 billion today. That's a pretty good multiple, right? A little over 10x. If it were 2x, well, you know, it's double that. And that seems like an interesting venture capital bet. It could go to zero. In fact, it is probably more likely to go to zero than a, a huge multiple, but the multiple is sufficiently high for a small investment to make it make sense. There is this question of this is a venture capital investment. Like other venture capital investments, there may be something else that comes along that forks or otherwise that solves more of the need of what a digital gold would look like. How do you decide when to switch? Yeah, good, good question. So I think about... So we don't just invest in crypto. In fact, crypto for us is a small part of what we do. And I would say, frankly, for anyone who's not running a crypto fund, it should be a small part of what you do. You shouldn't bet the farm on any of this. This is just another tech. And we invest in you know, software and genetics and other things. And that's, it's just, just one more venture capital category for us. It's not. And I think that's smart for everybody. Now, and the consequence of that is I look at each investment in crypto as a discrete risk. I'm not trying to say, I've got to make money in crypto so I have to cover all the crypto bases. I look at each individual one as where the opportunity cost for me is investing less in an LBO fund or in, or in the S&P 500 or the Eurostox or whatever. And so I, the problem I have is that I just think the odds are disproportionately low compared to the market caps to justify shifting assets from non-crypto to crypto. And I, the analogy I use is that to me, diversifying inside crypto is like a champion, a world champion poker player trying to smooth out her earnings by playing slots on the way to the table. You know, you're actually increasing risk and decreasing expected returns by diversifying at these price levels. Within cryptos, within crypto, at these price levels. I'm kind of like, okay, if it turns out that it's not Bitcoin or a fork of Bitcoin, because if it's a fork of Bitcoin and you own Bitcoin, you're going to own the fork. So you can kind of just let that flip play out. But if it's not Bitcoin and it's Zcash, right? And that, which is a great project, and Monero is a great project. These are all great projects, and I have a huge respect. But I, and and the you know you could say, well, those are different candidates. Let's allocate. And I could be wrong. We don't today because I'm just like ah, yeah. There's a chance, but I think it's remote enough that I'm happy just kind of maybe sitting it out. And that's different from the view on because I think they're all trying to be money. Those those examples from the utility protocols where I really do kind of. I think they're going to be successful. I think they're going to get a lot of users. I think they're going to be very disruptive. I think they're going to destroy, they'll create a lot of user surplus and destroy a lot of equity value. I just don't think the native currency crypto assets that underlie them are going to capture that for their investors. At least that's my current view, subject to revision when I learn something new. Utility protocols I just struggle with. I struggle to sort of justify their values. And one of the things that concerns me longer term is that if you're pushing a lot of economic activity through a utility protocol, right? But the network value, the native currency isn't worth that much in relation. You get to a point where the cost of attacking that blockchain is low compared to the reward of the attack. And so, so let me just explain that. One of the reasons to have a native currency is to incentivize the nodes or the miners to update the ledger and behave honestly. 
and you create penalties and incentives to do that. If you do it with a native currency, the challenge is, is if imagine you have, you get to some point where you've got trillions of dollars of economic activity happening on a protocol, but the native currency is only worth billions or hundreds of millions or something like that in the extreme. But by most methods, you would probably have a relatively low cost of attack to either double spend transactions or reverse transactions in your favor that happen on the blockchain. Which is effectively like hacking the Hack system. It. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of effectively hacking. The cost it. of hacking. Yeah. And so if that happened, you might find the security of the network being compromised. Now, I think that people would find, you know, users, companies, individuals would find these protocols useful and would say, well, there's, this isn't secure. Yeah, we want to treat this as working capital. The network value is not high enough. It's now becoming un- insecure. They wouldn't just stop using it, but it, it, they might switch to a fee model where basically you're paying miners to maintain the network, but maybe you're paying them in digital fiat or a store value protocol that might be Bitcoin or something else. So I think that could happen with a lot, if not maybe even most utility protocols in the end, which would imply they may even go to zero, the, crypt- the native crypto assets. Now, I'm not certain about anything in life, so I could be wrong. It seems to me I have to believe an awful lot to earn a not great return, and I would rather invest in other things right now than those things because of that. You know, I'd rather keep investing in the stock market or in leveraged buyout funds than, than allocate to that. The, the one exception that I see today is Bitcoin, because I think it has enough of a shot at being a store of value that's worth a venture capital allocation. And there may be future opportunities in tokenized cash flows and digital collectibles, and we'll look at that when that time comes. All right, let's turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment? Gosh, well, I'm not a big sports watcher, to be honest. Probably the only thing we watch is the Argentine national selection, because we're we're sort of part Argentine, and, and we're big supporters and, you know, like football, and so World Cup see how Argentina's doing. and it wasn't the hand of God? If you're going to believe in God, that's one reason too. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So we, I mean, to be honest, not a lot, but love, love watching Argentina play football. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that others might not know about? I don't know. I, I tend to, I get interested in things and I kind of instinctively follow a trail. And, I, and it's hard to me, for me to explain exactly what I'm doing, but I, I find a, 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 there are things that catch my eye. And one of the things I try to do is I, I think it's fine to read other people's opinions, but often it's useful to go to the source document. So I'll give an example in crypto. Rather than just reading what the crypto social media stars write about different things, just go read. Actually go read the, the different color papers of Ethereum and the, you know, the Homestead documentation and think about it, you know, is, is something that I think people could do more of and I think productively. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think figuring out what you're good at, at a certain point, organizing your life around what you're really good at and not stressing too much around what you're, you know, improving what you're not good at. And I think um, the energy that can be spent trying to be good at stuff you're not good at because you think that's what's kind of required is probably energy not well spent. So for me, for example, I find that what I'm 
where I create more value is just quietly reading and thinking and, and, and so forth. And if I could go back and recover years spent in meetings and coffees as opposed to doing that, I probably would. But that's because I just personally think that's what I'm good at, and other people are great at the contrary. But yeah, it would be organizing my life. I would have probably maybe organized what I was doing and, and so forth sooner around what I think I'm what I think I'm really good at and spent less energy trying to shore up and be something, you know, sort of be strong in areas that I'm not actually strong at. John, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.